Well, last summer here at Redeemer, we had a home group where we focused on strengthening our marriages. And one of the things that I enjoyed in that time was we heard stories of how different couples in our church moved from when they first met to the point that, of course, they ended up married to each other. Somehow that happens, right? You meet someone, then you're married someday. So, so it's fun to hear those stories of how did that happen for you guys? We heard a few high school sweetheart stories. We had a few I never thought of him that way kind of stories. We even had a few stories with breakups along the way. But I can tell you this, if Boaz and Ruth were part of that group, they would have had the best story. You can open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. We've been walking through the story of Ruth during this Advent season, and, and we need to catch up a little bit uh, to understand where we are in this chapter. And so let's just review uh, Ruth chapters 1 and 2 for a few minutes together this morning. The book opens by reminding us, telling us that the story is taking place during the time of the judges. It was the days when the judges ruled. This was a period of national spiritual darkness. The refrain of the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that's when Ruth is taking place. And the story of Ruth is the story of how God was working in the midst of this darkness to bring light to the whole world through one needy family in Bethlehem. Now this family was the family of a man named Elimelech. The Lord sent famine to Bethlehem, and Elimelech, when that happened, should have responded in repentance. He should have understood that the Lord was doing exactly what he said he would do when his people strayed. But instead of repenting, he and his family left the promised land for the country of Moab, the enemy Gentile territory of the Moabites. Well, in Moab, Elimelech died. Then his sons, who had married Moabite wives, also died. And left behind was the man's wife, Naomi, who was now facing a sure life of poverty without a husband or sons. When Naomi heard that the Lord had visited Bethlehem, though she was filled with bitterness in her heart, believing that God was against her for her sin, she decided, I'm going to return to where there's food. But to her surprise, one of her Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth, insisted on returning with her. Even though this all but guaranteed Ruth a life of poverty and childlessness. Why did Ruth do that? Why didn't she go back to Moab? We see that she chose to return because she had come to put her faith in the Lord God of Israel. And that faith expressed itself through her loyal love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Though she was a Moabite, we have seen that through her faith, Ruth had taken refuge in the Lord, had become a true Israelite. Last week we saw that the Lord rewarded Ruth for her faith with undeserved kindness. When she went out to glean in the fields to provide some food for her and Naomi, God's providence uh, worked so that she came to the field of a wealthy and worthy man named Boaz. Now Boaz not only let her glean, he offered her protection from the danger of assault. He provided her with water when she grew weary. He invited her to enjoy a full meal with him and his servants. And he provided for her a way to glean way more than she ever could have on her own. What Ruth didn't know during all this was that this man named Boaz was actually a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And here's why that's significant, because according to the Old Testament law, a relative like Boaz could fulfill the role of what was called the kinsman redeemer. Now, we don't have anything like that in our culture today, so we need to take a minute to understand what this kinsman redeemer was. Here's the way this worked. Every family in Israel was allotted land from the Lord. 
And that land inheritance was to carry on for all generations through the family line. But if someone fell into poverty, they could sell their land and sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts and to survive. In that situation, as an expression of his faithfulness to his people, the Lord provided the system of a kinsman redeemer. Leviticus 25 is where we find these laws expounded. Here's a simple summary from one commentator of what they state. A kinsman redeemer was a person who had an obligation to buy his relatives back if they sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. And under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer would also be obligated to marry his brother's widow in order to raise up a family for the dead man, a family that would inherit his property. Now, you can see how all this relates to Naomi and Ruth's situation, right? They are widows who are facing poverty, and they need a kinsman redeemer both to provide for them and to provide an heir for their family. Here's the catch, though. While Boaz could fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer, he was under no legal obligation to do so. Why not? Well, as we'll find out, there was a closer relative to Elimelech's family in Bethlehem who would be first in line. And secondly, because Ruth was a foreigner who had unlawfully married into Elimelech's line, the laws of kinsman redeemer didn't directly apply to her situation. Boaz was under no legal obligation to do what normally someone would need to do for his family according to the law. So Naomi and Ruth needed redemption. They knew Boaz could provide redemption, but what could they do to seek it? And this is what Ruth chapter 3 picks up. We can break the chapter into four parts, and it starts with Naomi's plan in verses 1 through 5. Naomi's plan. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Well, we're going to get to Naomi's surprising, seemingly scandalous instructions to Ruth in just a moment. But first, just notice how the chapter begins. For the first time since they returned to Bethlehem, we see Naomi take an interest in Ruth's welfare. Should I not seek rest for you? Do you remember when Naomi said at the end of chapter 1, even though Ruth had pledged her loyal love to her, she told the woman of Bethlehem, the Lord has brought me back empty. In her bitterness, Ruth was nothing to her. She thought only of herself. She didn't even value Ruth at that time. But through Boaz's kindness to Ruth in chapter 2, we saw in chapter 2 that Naomi's heart began to soften to the Lord. She, she, she began to realize that his kindness has not departed from me. He's not against me. And now we see the fruit of that newly renewed hope in the Lord. She's finally thinking about Ruth. There's a principle there that we need to see. True repentance always bears the fruit of a loving concern for others. True repentance will always bear the fruit of a loving concern for others. She had moved from her bitterness in her sin to hope in the Lord, put her faith in the Lord, and now should I not seek rest for you, my daughter? It's important that we recognize this in Naomi because it gives us the framework that we need to interpret the instruction she's about to give. 
right? She, she's, this is a repentant person. And that helps us read with the right lenses what she's saying. Naomi recognizes that Boaz is a worthy man who could provide Ruth with the rest of provision and protection in marriage. And this is what she desires for her daughter-in-law. She doesn't want just any man for Ruth. She wants a worthy man like Boaz, just like any parent wants a godly spouse for their child. This is what she desires for her daughter-in-law. Yes, a, a marriage between Boaz and Ruth would benefit Naomi, but there's no hint in the text that Naomi's hatching this plan out of self-interest. It's not like she's thinking to herself, well, Boaz would help me out. Ruth, what about Boaz? That's not what's going on. She has made the turn from bitterness and selfishness to hope and love. And so she comes to Ruth and she gives these instructions to her. Now, what is with these instructions? <laughs> at a first read, they seem at best foolish and at worst scandalous. One commentator asks, is she really telling her daughter-in-law to perfume herself? put on her most attractive clothes, go down to the threshing floor in the middle of the night, lie beside a man to whom she's not married, and wait to see what happens. Yeah, that's what she says to do, right? Is Naomi trying to force Boaz's hand, though? Is she trying to lure him into temptation so that he would be obligated to redeem them? Is that what's going on? Some commentators think that's what's happening, but the problem is that there's nothing in the story to indicate that these instructions were immoral. In fact, from chapter 2, verse 20 to the end of the book, all the characters, all three characters, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, are portrayed as examples of faith and trust in the Lord. So what's going on then? That still doesn't explain the instructions, right? What's going on is that there's no other way for Ruth to express their desire to Boaz. This wasn't a time where you could just walk up in broad daylight to someone like Boaz and say, marry me. And yet Naomi wanted to make sure that Boaz really got the message that this is what they wanted. Her instructions then, they're not, they're not instructions meant to manipulate Boaz, not to come like a harlot to Boaz. They're instructions to present herself to Boaz as a bride. Instructions that Ruth embraces. All that you say, I will do. Which leads to the second part of the story in verses 6 through 9. Ruth's proposal. Ruth's proposal. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth carries out all Naomi's instructions. She hides herself while Boaz finishes his work and then he finishes his meal and he lies down and the text tells us that under the cover of night she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Again, this may be the most perplexing action of the chapter. So let's reiterate first that Ruth's actions are interpreted in the chapter as worthy. Boaz himself will respond to this and say, you are a worthy woman. So we can assume that what's happening here is not immoral but again, what, what is she doing? Why does she do this? Why would she uncover his feet and lay down? Well, there are a few possible answers, and they, they may all be true at once, and so I'll give them all to you. First, it might have simply been a way to wake him up. Verse 8 tells us that he was startled. Have you ever had your feet uncovered in the middle of the night, and you start getting cold, and you wake up, and got to get the blanket back over your feet, and it's possible he just woke up with the cold air coming over his feet. This is a way to wake him up. Another possibility is that someone's feet was the place of petition. 
By uncovering and laying at his feet, Ruth is placing herself in the posture of a servant seeking a request. But finally, and I think most likely, uncovering his feet was the specific way that Ruth was making her specific desire known that she wanted Boaz to take her to be his wife. This was a proposal. This makes the most sense of what she says in verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I assume that most of your Bibles, like mine, have a footnote in this verse next to the word wings. The ESV footnote states that wings can also mean corners of a garment. In other words, Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet in order to say to him, cover me. She uncovers his feet to say, cover me. In fact, this is the exact same language that the Lord himself would later use to describe how he took Israel to be his bride in Ezekiel 16.8. Listen to Ezekiel 16.8, God speaking to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. As foreign as it all may sound to us today, the covering of someone with the corner of a garment was a symbol similar to that of an engagement ring. And this is exactly how Boaz himself understands Ruth's actions. He doesn't ask, why do you do that? <laughs> what the, what is, no, he knows what it means. He knows exactly what she's asking, which leads us to the third part of the story in verses 10 through 13, Boaz's promise. Boaz's promise, and he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now most men in Boaz's situation, would have taken advantage of someone who had made herself as vulnerable as Ruth did. But we see here why the author told us in chapter 2 that Boaz is a worthy man. He responds to Ruth's risky request first by extolling her character. He says, this last kindness is greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What is Boaz referring to here? He's not simply saying, you're so kind to want me even though I'm an old man. No, Boaz is actually referring to Ruth's continued kindness to Naomi. See, her first kindness was her pledge of loyal love to Naomi when she returned with her to Bethlehem. But now there's an even greater kindness. This second kindness is greater than the first in that she has maintained that pledge to Naomi by seeking Boaz in marriage rather than someone else. See, Ruth understood that if she sought Boaz, this would be of benefit to her mother-in-law as well. She could have gone after someone else, and Naomi would be left still destitute without an heir. But by seeking Boaz, Ruth placed herself at great risk for Naomi's benefit. And once again, Boaz sees in Ruth an example of someone whose faith is expressing itself through sacrificial, selfless love. Knowing the kind of person that she is, a former Moabite, but Bo knowing this is a true, faithful Israelite at heart, Boaz promises to redeem her. I will do for you all that you ask. However, Boaz is aware that there's another man in Bethlehem who's a nearer relative than he. And he understands that the other man is first in line according to the law, and so he assures Ruth that he will speak with that man 
and see if he's willing to redeem her first. Says, if, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. You'll be redeemed. But if he's not, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I would be delighted to redeem you. His final instruction, lie down until the morning, leads us to the final part of the story, verses 14 through 18, Boaz's provision. Boaz's provision. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You know, from the moment that Ruth met Boaz while gleaning in the field, he has continually sought her protection and provision. And he continues to do that in this passage. Again, Ruth has placed herself at great risk by coming at night. And Boaz knows that, and he works to protect her. On the one hand, he has her laid down and sleep there through the rest of the night to protect her from the danger of assault and returning home by night. But then he has the discretion to have her leave early in the morning so that no one would see her and imagine that something scandalous has taken place. He protects her physically and socially. Further, he doesn't send her back empty. But as she leaves, he measures out six measures of barley to take back to Naomi. That's about 80 pounds of barley. One commentator noted that Ruth must be pretty strong. (laughs) When Ruth returns to Naomi, like a parent who knew their son was going to propose, Naomi asks, how did you fare? What happened? What did he say? And Ruth relays Boaz's words, and then Ruth explains the purpose of these 80 pounds of barley. He says, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back to your empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Remember what Naomi said in chapter 1, I've returned empty. This was Boaz's pledge to Naomi that he would fulfill the promise. This is his way of saying to Naomi, you aren't empty anymore. You'll be full again, Naomi. And Naomi understands the meaning of the pledge, and she assures Ruth that all they have to do now is wait. Now we just wait. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now as we step back from the chapter, what are we to make of this for our lives right now? Is this this chapter a divine guide for women on how to pursue a man who isn't making a move? Maybe. Is this an instruction manual for parents on how to help their children find a spouse? Well, it might be possible to find some principle along those lines. That's not what Ruth 3 is really about. Ruth 3 is about our mutual need that we share with Ruth, with Naomi, for redemption. Ruth 3 is about our need for redemption from our sins and our sufferings. It's about the fact that because of our sin, we are sufferers in a fallen world, and we find ourselves in desperate need of a Redeemer. And along those lines, there are three connections that we need to make this morning, one for each character in this story. Three connections. First, like Naomi, we must strive to help those who need redemption. Like Naomi, we must strive to help those who need redemption. 
as we saw earlier, there's been a noticeable shift in Naomi from when we first met her in chapter 1 to now. It's not that she didn't have any love for her daughters-in-law in chapter 1. Even then, she, she did pray that the Lord would bring them rest in the house of a husband. But the problem with that prayer was that she sought rest for them in the house of a Moabite husband. She only saw their temporal needs. She was only pursuing their temporal good. She didn't see their deeper spiritual need for the Lord. And the reason that she didn't see that is because she herself had come to mistrust the Lord's kindness in her own life. You see, by the time chapter 3 comes, through Ruth's loyal love to her, through Boaz's lavish kindness to them, Naomi's moved from bitterness to hope. And with that move of the heart, there's a new concern for Ruth's welfare. And this is highly instructive for us today. We need to press into this. On the one hand, if we don't grasp the kindness and trustworthiness of the Lord for ourselves, we will never point others to him as a place of refuge and redemption. This is so important for us to understand this morning. If we're not seeing that the Lord is a kind, good refuge for us, why would we ever tell someone else you can take refuge in the Lord? You see, Naomi needed to come to a place of hope in the Lord before she could bear the fruit of love for Ruth. And so we need to search our hearts this morning. Is there a lack of trust in the Lord underneath your lack of love for others? Is the reason that you are not commending Christ to others because deep down you aren't confident that he's worth commending? If that's you, pray this morning that the Lord would open your eyes to God's trustworthiness and grace, to his covenant kindness and his loyal love. Pray that he would lead you from where you are to the place where Naomi got, where she could say, the Lord is a refuge. Now on the other hand, if we have experienced these things, and if we do know that the Lord is a sure hope, then like Naomi, should we not seek the rest of those who need redemption? Should we not strive to pursue them with the love of Christ? Should we not think long and hard about the best plan to help them find the rest that they need? Listen, one thing should be obvious to us about what Naomi does here. She didn't just come up with this plan for the moment. Ruth, Naomi realized back in chapter 2, while the harvest was going on, he's a redeemer. You can imagine that for several weeks, she was thinking, how can we make this happen? How, how can I help Ruth find rest? And she came up with a plan, a creative, wise, risky plan to help Ruth find redemption in Boaz. Should we not think hard and creatively about how to help others who need redemption? This is one reason why we have our two upcoming events this Wednesday and Sunday. Our desire is that we'd be able to share about the gospel of Christ with those who need redemption on Sunday night a week from today. But how do we get people to that point? Well, by inviting them to come to a fun night for families at a kid's Christmas party. It's nothing elaborate. It's not the most creative plan in the world, but it's our effort to think creatively about how to help pursue people who need the gospel of Christ. Church, if we've found that Christ is a sure hope for sinners, then we should strive to help those in our lives, our community, and our world who need redemption in Him. We should think and apply ourselves to what can we do and what plan could we make to help them find the redemption they need. We should be like Naomi here, thinking hard and creatively and wisely about how we can pursue others' redemption in Christ. 
Second connection we need to see this morning. Like Ruth, like Ruth, we must seek redemption through desperate trust. Like Ruth, we must seek redemption through desperate trust. What does Ruth teach us about how we should actually go about pursuing rest in our Redeemer? Of course, at one level, her actions do not translate. Needless to say, no one here today needs to go out from this place to a threshing floor tonight and uncover someone's feet. Do not do that. (laughs) But we can learn something from the spirit of her actions. If we think about what Ruth did that night, one thing we can immediately sense is how vulnerable she made herself before Boaz. She put herself in a position of great risk, and we need to ask the question, why would Ruth do that? And the answer is, first, because she was desperate. Her sense of desperateness. Ruth knew that Naomi was right. Ruth knew that left to herself, she faced a life of severe hardship. The Lord had provided for her and Naomi through the barley harvest, but now that was over. And soon there would be no food left for them from what she had gleaned. And further, they still had no heir and no way to maintain their inheritance in Israel. Ruth knew the desperateness of their situation. She knew she needed to do something. But she didn't do this out of desperateness alone. Desperateness can drive people away from solutions. She also acted out of trust. She acted out of trust. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw that Ruth had already come to trust in the Lord. The Lord had rewarded her through the kindness and generosity of Boaz. And now, as she reflects on what God had already done, Ruth has come to realize that not only is the Lord himself trustworthy, but Boaz is also a trustworthy man who reflects the character of the Lord. And we know that Ruth makes this connection because of the way she frames her request to Boaz in 3.9. Spread your wings over your servant. That's familiar language because it's the same language that Boaz used to describe Ruth's taking refuge in chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2.12, he said, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So you see the familiarity of that language. You see what Ruth is saying. I've come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, and now I come to you asking that you let me take refuge under your wings. I know that you're a worthy man, and so I ask that you be the means of the Lord's redemption in my life. You see, Ruth came to Boaz at the threshing floor because she needed Boaz, but she also trusted Boaz. Her desperation and his trustworthiness led her to place herself in a wholly vulnerable position, knowing that he would take redemptive action in her life. And this is an example for all who seek redemption, that we too must come to the Lord in desperate trust. We need to understand the desperateness of our situation Because of our sin, the Bible tells us that we have been alienated from God and we're under his wrath. In our sin, we've been separated from the relationship with our creator that we were made to enjoy and now we are facing his almighty and righteous anger. Because God is infinitely holy, the righteous punishment for sin is an eternal punishment away from his presence. Left to ourselves, the Bible describes our future with terms like fire and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the thing, an entire lifetime of laboring to be righteous will not help us at all. We could never escape. 
The only hope we have is the hope of redemption outside of ourselves. The good news, the gospel, is that the same God whose wrath we face has lovingly provided a trustworthy redeemer for us. In our desperateness, there is someone we can turn to in full confidence that he will save us. We can make ourselves completely vulnerable before him knowing that he's trustworthy, knowing that he will redeem us. And this leads us to the last connection we need to make this morning. Like Boaz, Jesus is the true redeemer who will bring us final rest. Like Boaz, Jesus is the true redeemer who will bring us final rest. Consider this morning all the ways that Boaz, Ruth's redeemer, points us to Jesus, our redeemer. Like Boaz, Jesus is a kinsman redeemer. Like Boaz, Jesus is a kinsman redeemer. As we've already seen, in order for someone to fulfill the role of redeemer in Israel, they had to be related to the person needing redemption. They had to be kin. We say that in the South, right? Like they're kin. Right? It'd be related. It'd be a relative. Boaz could fulfill this role for Ruth because he was a relative of Elimelech. But this underscores something about Jesus that should greatly increase our celebration of Christmas this year. Through his incarnation, Jesus has made himself a relative of ours. Through his incarnation, Jesus has made himself one of our brothers, and therefore he's qualified to be our redeemer. This is a role that he can fulfill because he became flesh. The Heidelberg Catechism answers, why did the Son of God need to, why did the Redeemer need to be fully human? And it says, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. The same human nature that has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. This is exactly in line with Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus was going to be our redeemer, he had to be one of us. He had to be human. He had to be our brother. He had to be able to represent us truly before God. And that is why he came. This is why we celebrate the incarnation. This is why we celebrate the reality that God was made low. That God is with us in Christ. The one who is in himself, the radiance of the glory of God, took on our humanity. And that means that Jesus is qualified to represent us and to redeem us. He is the true kinsman redeemer. But not only that, like Boaz, Jesus is a willing redeemer. Jesus is a willing redeemer. One of the important features in the story of Ruth is that he was, Boaz was under no legal obligation here. He didn't need to redeem Naomi and Ruth. He wasn't the nearest kinsman. She wasn't an Israelite. Naomi couldn't just come up to Boaz and say, do what you're supposed to do. Fulfill your duty. No, any action that Boaz took had to be a willing action. It had to come from a heart of loving kindness and mercy and compassion. And when Ruth came and requested of Boaz to willingly carry out this redemptive act, he said, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. We need to remind ourselves this morning that God owes salvation to none of us. God is under no legal obligation to save us. According to his righteousness expressed through his law, the only legal obligation that God has toward us is to condemn us for our sins. Salvation is not something we can demand of God, and redemption is not something that we can demand of Jesus. But the good news is that God is a gracious God, and a merciful God, and a loving God, 
And when we come to him seeking redemption, we hear the same words that Ruth heard from Boaz. Do not fear. I will do all that you ask. Jesus will never reject the request of those who lay out before him in their desperateness and say, cover me. Praise him this morning, church. Jesus is a willing redeemer who will cover us. Not only that, Jesus is a righteous redeemer. Like Boaz, Jesus is a righteous redeemer. Listen, Boaz was qualified to redeem Ruth. Boaz was willing to redeem Ruth. But because of this other man, there was an obstacle in the way. There was a nearer relative who had the first right of redemption. So before Boaz could redeem her, Boaz understood he had deceived this other man, was inclined to redeem her first. And in this, here's what we see. We see that Boaz, the worthy man, was a righteous man who would not seek to go around the law of God to redeem her. He would redeem Ruth according to the law. And this teaches us something about Jesus. Jesus also is a righteous redeemer. He's qualified. He's willing. But there's something in the way. What was the obstacle that would prevent Jesus from redeeming us? It was God's righteous law that pronounced death and condemnation on all who have sinned. This law stands between us and our redemption. Jesus can't come and just redeem us. He can't just say, you're redeemed. No, but what did Jesus do? Church, listen to Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus didn't go around the law to redeem us. He was born under the law, and then he perfectly obeyed the law, and then he took on the curse that the law required in our place for our sin in order to redeem us from the law. He is a righteous redeemer. And not only that, church, Jesus is a coming redeemer. Jesus is a coming redeemer. In Ruth chapter 3, redemption is promised, but it's not yet completed. At the end of Ruth chapter 3, Ruth must wait. She must wait to see Boaz's promise come to fruition. But as they waited, do you know what Naomi and Ruth had in addition to the words of promise? They had 80 pounds of barley in their home. This was Boaz's pledge of his promise. This was Boaz's way of saying, redemption will come. Here's a down payment to assure you as your hearts wait. This morning, we find ourselves waiting. Of course, in certain ways, Jesus has already redeemed us. We have been set free from the law. We have been set free from our sin. And yet, we live in the already and the not yet. And our redemption is still future as well. Jesus has promised us that one day he will come again. And that our redemption will be complete. And he will take us to himself. And we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the word of promise that we wait for and put our hope in. But do you know what? Like Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi, Jesus has left us with more than just his word of promise. Jesus has left us with a down payment that guarantees his promise. Now let me explain this. One thing that we might not pick up on as we read the book of Ruth is the timing of this story. The, the way that when does this story happen on Israel's calendar year? When Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem, do you know what time it was? It was the beginning of barley harvest, which happened to be the same time as Passover. The Passover that commemorated the redemption of the Exodus. Then at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, some time has passed. The barley harvest is completed, 
Boaz is at the threshing floor. Do you know when this was happening? With the Feast of Pentecost. Commemorating the first fruits of God's provision for his people. And here's why that's significant. Because by telling us that they returned to Israel at the time of the Passover, the author's painting their return as a, as a miniature exodus, so to speak, coming back to the land that God promised from the land that was not a promise, from Moab. It's a small-scale example of God's redemptive work in their lives, and it points to the ultimate Passover when Christ was sacrificed for our redemption. At Passover, Jesus died to redeem us from our sins. He rose again. He redeemed us. He set us free. He brought us in. And then he promised that he will come again. Well, the apostles were left waiting for that promise. And it was in that period of waiting on the day of Pentecost that Jesus sent what Paul calls the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, the first fruits of what is to come, the ultimate token of Jesus' promise that he will redeem us again. So this Advent season, we remember that Jesus is a coming Redeemer. We put our hope in the word of his promise, and our hearts find assurance through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Church family, in desperate trust, let's lay ourselves out at the feet of Jesus and say, cover me. And let's take assurance in his promise that he will redeem us. We have nothing to be afraid of. And he's given us his spirit to guarantee it. Let's encourage each other to wait in this hope until he comes. And let's tell others that there is a redeemer who will not turn them away. Our Father, we praise you for the richness of your word and the story of Ruth. And how it teaches us of what your work is in our lives. And we thank you so much that there is a redeemer in Jesus Christ. Who, through the incarnation, was qualified to redeem us. Who has a willing delighted heart to redeem us, who redeems us according to the righteousness that you express through your law and who has made us an unshakable promise that final redemption will come. Oh Lord, help us to lay ourselves out at Jesus' feet in desperate trust. Help us to wait with faith in the promise coming and help us to tell others how they can find redemption in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.